0: Welcome to Pipeline Conversations, a machine learning podcast by ZenML. This week, I spoke with Karthik Kannan, co founder and CTO of Envision, a company that builds on top of the Google Glass and uses augmented reality features of phones to allow visually impaired people to better sense the environment or objects around them. Their software and devices are pretty popular, and as you'll hear in this conversation, they've been on a real journey to get to where they are now. In particular, I really enjoyed the parts where Karthik explained their development and deployment process in detail. It's not too often that you get to go into a deep dive into the workflows and stacks of an embedded computer vision company and tool. And so I think you're really going to enjoy this one.
1: So uh, my name is Karthik Kanan. I am the founder and CTO of this, this company called Envision. Um, and uh, you know how I ended up starting Envision uh, it Basically, I had a background in, in software engineering, you know, so um, I finished my bachelor's back in India in 2013. Um, and uh, ever since 2013, I've been working uh, primarily in backend, uh, and then I switched to product management. And then uh, be- just before I was uh, actually starting uh, out on Envision, uh, I was primarily, you know, um, um, I was primarily in the backend space, basically, right So I, I kind of became like a, a like I started off in backend in, in 2013. I was primarily working in closure. Uh, you know, which was a very interesting, you know, choice for the company that I was working for, because most people were, you know, when you think about back you think about Python, you think about that stuff. But then they had a very opinionated take, and they, you know, they felt Lisp and Closure was the way to go. Um, and so uh, I started primarily working Closure, and then at that point, uh, and and then, you know, I was working a startup called Helpshift. And uh, right after that, I wanted to really start exploring. Uh, the big data space uh, that was really becoming a hot thing in 2014 it was still not mm-hmm. um, machine learning and stuff like that. But that gave me like direct exposure uh, to what was happening in machine learning. Um, you know, and I, I first started off playing around with AlexNet and all of those kind of very early stage models uh, that, were, that were happening at that point in time. Um, you know, I mean I can date myself here a bit. I was really in the in, in the community when Tiano was like a big deal, you know, uh before uh the before TF and PyTorch oh, and all these collection. Yeah, there was Tiano and and so I started to explore uh, because I was working at a D commerce company in India which was basically building uh, something like Shopify, but for an Indian audience. Uh, that was basically uh, what they were doing. And so I was working in the back end with the big data side of things, uh, you know, trying to work, uh, trying to build these recommender system plugins that we could cross sell to the people who are building stores on our platform, right? So that was my first exposure to like machine learning. And I was there for about three to four years. And after that, I started to think, okay, I, I wanted to take a break for myself. Uh, so that's basically uh, how I started to get into, say, computer vision. So I. I, I'm, I'm not, you know, sort of academically trained in computer vision. Uh, I am more of a practitioner, uh, not a researcher. Um, and so I started to explore computer vision in detail, like in 2015, 2016. At that point in time, Kaggle was still really, really new. And I was very, very active on Kaggle, uh, not, not to look for like job opportunities per se, but just because I was really, really excited and interested about the computer vision space. Um, and so that's how Envision happened because in 2016, you know, I have uh, my co-founder who's also called Karthik and uh, we both have the same first name and he was actually a student at the TU Delft. And the two of us went to a blind school in India to talk about, you know, uh, talk to kids, uh, who were just passing out of school at that time about what kind of career opportunities do you have if you are going into like you know the research slash programming space, or you know he's a designer, so he was talking more about how how things are from a designer's point of view. What do designers do? Um. And I think the fundamental, you know, co- uh, conversation was about, you know, solving problems because that's what a programmer does. That's what a designer does. We all go to work every day and solve different types of problems. And you know, it was just a very harmless question to these kids as to like what kind of problems would they like to solve. You know, we asked it in a very trivial way, expecting to get very run-of-the-mill answers. But then the answers that came out of the kids, you know, it was very. It it seemed like it was the most basic thing to do as a human being but for them those were insurmountable problems you know they said things like i want to be able to read books more independently i wanted to be able to go out more independently i wanted to be able to live independently by myself without having to depend on others so independence became this sort of common factor in their lives um you know and, and it was it was such a limiting thing for them to not be able to do any of these basic things independently and so that's how you know uh, right after the conversation we were really shaken by it because they were these really young kids and, you know, they didn't come from very affluent backgrounds. So, you know, the dreams that they had were, you know, like kind of insurmountable because of the place they were coming from and because of their disability. And so that's when, you know, I was telling him, hey, you know, there are all these really interesting advances happening in computer vision. Uh, you know, we're we're seeing, uh, you know, models becoming better and better. We're seeing, you know, at that point in time, TF you know, TensorFlow was really new and but you could still, you know, with a little bit of effort, take models and deploy them on device, Uh, you could do a lot of these things. And we thought maybe there is a way to bring good design and ML together to solve the problems that they were basically having. Right. And that is how, uh, you know, I landed up at Envision. And that's sort of my background. It's, you know,
0: I mean, I guess everything makes sense in retrospect, but probably when you started out, you maybe wouldn't have had any idea that you would end up here.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, when I was playing around with, you know, computer vision back in 2015, uh, 2014, 2015, 2016, I really had no clue that it would all add up to this. You know, I think it was uh, back then, I was purely focused on trying to. Uh, keep up with the different papers that were getting published. You know, that time I felt the research was more open. Uh, people would, you know, would share checkpoints more easily. Uh, you know, you could talk to researchers at some of the big labs. You know, they were they were really very collaborative and open. Uh, and and so my aim was to just take a paper, replicate it, uh, or or be able to like you know go ahead and train a few models and and try to deploy them onto your phone. Um, at that time, I think you know Prisma was this really famous app that would do, uh you know, um should have forgot, like, uh, style transfer. Yeah, so it would do style transfer. And so style transfer was a big thing. So I started writing about style transfer and playing around with it. So it was just, you know, pure exploration without any kind of um, goal in mind. But I think that's what, led me eventually to start working or or giving me the confidence that okay you know what i could take some of the state-of-the-art research and try to productize it you know and and that's what um i i was i spent i spent a lot of my time on today as well yeah
0: mm-hmm. Um. before we kind of i guess move into a little bit about like how you do things maybe you could yeah talk about exactly what envision is and what you do and how you help people
1: Sure. So Envision is a company that builds tools for people with a visual impairment. Uh, so when I say people with a visual impairment, it can be someone who's completely blind since birth or someone who probably has like maybe 10 percent, 20 percent residual vision. So it's, a, it's people across the spectrum. So we build tools that help people with a visual impairment across the spectrum to do things, uh, to do everyday things more independently right so uh, we have for example the envision glasses which basically is a smart glasses where we build our software on top of the google glass uh, to go ahead and help visually impaired people to read text so they could read any kinds of text pretty much from any printed surface uh, recognize faces recognize objects you can even make video calls directly from uh, the glasses to a friend or a family member um that's that's basically what we do. We also have the Envision app. So we initially came out with the Envision app back in 2017. Uh, and what the Envision app could do back then was just, you know, take a picture, read the text in the picture, or do like a primitive description of what it sees, you know. Um, and from that point on, uh, we evolved the app. And in 2019, we won the Google Play Award uh, for the best accessibility experience on Android. That same year, uh, we had a chance to talk to google and ask them about if we can you know uh, if there are, if they do have any smart classes in the works uh, if they can go ahead and share uh, you know that with us, and they were really kind, and they said, yeah, like we do have uh, some smart glasses. In fact, it's a reboot of the Google Glass that everybody loves to hate. Um, and but this time, we're not going to sell it as like a thing that people can buy, but it's going to be more of a device that's sold to enterprises so that they can do stuff like you know uh, remote teleconferencing and all those things, right? So basically, for for companies that have big warehouses, but they were really struck uh, by our application. Uh, and also the fact that we won the Google Play Award kind of added a little bit more weight to our claims. Um, and they said, okay, cool. And they gave us, a, gave me a pair of glasses in 2019. I brought that back to the, uh, to the Netherlands, uh, took our Android app, repurposed it for the Google Glass from the ground up, uh, and basically gave that out to some of our testers and they absolutely loved it. And that eventually became the Envision glasses. So it, what we try to do is we try to take the state of the art in computer vision, uh, and we try to also see, or, or we rather start with the problems that people with the visual impairment face, and then we look for solutions in state-of-the-art computer vision. Uh, and we really take that research uh, in the open domain, uh, put, a ta- you know, uh, like really productize it, and then deploy them on device or on the cloud, uh, depending on what kind of solutions, uh, you know, is works best. Um, all in the service of helping people with the visual impairment solve the everyday problems that exist around them using computer vision so that's what envision does in a nutshell
0: and is the idea at some point because i know i mean there's the much fabled uh, apple glasses or whatever yeah. which may, may not uh, ever come is the idea that you, what you're building is uh, agnostic to the specific hardware that it, it, it's on or
1: yeah that's that has always been sort of like the vision where we started envision like the technical vision was to build a platform agnostic uh, solution, you know. In fact, I, you know, we we barely have any platform specific code, uh, any computer vision platform specific code. Uh, most of the work in computer vision that we do, uh, when it comes to deployment on device, uh, is and will all be in C++. You know, like that's sort of the common layer that we have. Uh, it is, yeah. It's it's a bit. It takes much longer, of course, to deploy things that way. But tomorrow, if we do have, for example, I mean, today all the computer vision stuff that we have is just one single code base shared across three different platforms. And I'm pretty sure that, you know, if Amazon comes out with glasses or Apple comes out with glasses, uh, we can easily take what we have and just put it on, uh, you know, uh, those platforms um, with with some amount of, of course, we need to build an entire UI and UX around it. That's that's also 50% of the work, uh, but at least the computer vision stuff is always platform agnostic. So I am hoping they come out with glasses. Uh, when they do, uh, we would be fairly ready on the computer vision side uh, with that. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you started to talk a little bit about that. I'm curious, like, what your like the engineering stack looks like um, for and, and kind of ha- how you go about building it uh, among your team.
1: Yeah. So, um, all our initial research always you know, starts off with uh, with Python. Uh, so that's basically what our stack looks like primarily. So we we are we're a fully TF company at this point uh, because TF. TensorFlow was sort of the initial framework that had like a mobile that you could deploy, uh, that that you could quantize models and deploy to. Of course, with PyTorch, that has always been around as well, but it was not as straightforward uh, to do it as TensorFlow, right? So uh, our stack is entirely TF-based. So we use TF, uh, you know, we started experimenting even now with TFX in the early stages, but TF is basically what we do. So when we want to start working on a problem, you know, in, especially when we are working on like a B2C or like when we're trying to build a product for the consumers, even the computer vision folks are heavily, heavily involved uh, at the very earliest stages of building a particular feature or building a particular solution. Because what we do is we actually have uh, people who visit our office, visually impaired users who visit our office. Uh, we usually pair a designer and a computer vision person together in those sessions. And they both lead Uh, you know, the session equally in terms of trying to understand what the core problem it is that, you know, a, a visually impaired person wants to solve, right? So it starts a lot there uh, and we determine from that point on as to what is the core technical problem that someone wants to solve. For example, a lot of people who came into Envision early on, they were like, "Yeah, we would love to," uh, you know, like I I I read textbooks, and you know, and in, in textbooks they tend to be these tables. Um, and when you talk about tables, uh, it's it's extremely inaccessible, especially printed tables are yeah. pretty much. It's, it's horrible to read if you pass that through a regular ocr tool you know even if you take the commercial ocr engines they're terrible at reading tables you know so but for a lot of visually impaired people they do read textbooks they do you know go to work and all those documents tend to have tables that are very inaccessible for them so when we start off with that we start looking at what is the state-of-the-art research in the space uh, and we try to determine that okay that's the core technical problem and even there we try to determine what are the constraints, you know, is it something that people expect to work entirely on device, right? That also influences a lot in how we go about it. And so we start looking at what the state of the art research is. And we usually spend about a few weeks doing just understanding the research and and like trying to build prototypes uh, of of the work that's there, or try try to experiment with different architectures. And at some point, we kind of, you know, and, and all of all of that work is done entirely in Python. We use TF even for at the prototyping stage. Um and, and even if yeah, like I mean there are some engineers at Envision who are very opinion opinionated and feel like they want to use PyTorch, but then yeah, like the work happens primarily in TensorFlow and, and so we just get to that point where we build a very simple model uh and then you know uh call in the designers also to like just you know have a give them an idea of how it looks you know some of the designers we have at envision are fairly comfortable now with, with operating jupyter notebooks right so they could just go or, you know to um, collab and just run the cells and see how the output looks like and so on and just play around with it a few times um, at that stage after that stage what we do is we start you know building the early prototypes and depending on whether something needs to work online or offline, we might start even directly working with C++, right? So at that point in time, our stack is entirely C++. It's OpenCV, C++, and TF entirely on device. Uh, and that's when we start building the the beta of it. And initially, what happens is with the computer vision team, all of the C++ work is basically done completely standalone, right? So we're not looking to integrate them right away you know, into our apps, we do have, like, an emulator environment uh, which emulates how the glasses looks like. We have a sample project that they can, like, go, go ahead and plug their code in. So we have different types of sample projects, one for, like, say, object detection, you know, models, one for image classification models. And, you know, they know enough uh, Kotlin and enough Swift to just modify some of the input of values. Uh, and at that point, we start really building the prototype. And once you build a prototype, we have the platform engineers helping us you know, go ahead and get that deployed into the app or into the glasses. And from that point on, it's the computer vision team, uh, it's the computer vision engineer, it's the designer, and the users going through an iterative process uh, where we are really refining the model, uh, we're really refining even the post processing algorithms or whatever it is, along with the users as they give us feedback. Um, and this usually takes about like, yeah, three to, f- you know, could be about three to six weeks of just pure iteration work. Uh, and once that is done, we have a V1 that is deployed. And of course, uh, you know, we, we're we still figuring out the best way to monitor how these ML models work in production, how good they are. Uh, it's always been a very tricky thing with the glasses. You can't deploy a lot, on, like you can't really deploy heavy more, you know, like libraries on the glasses. You have to keep things as nimble as possible. Uh, the UX is also kind of hard because sometimes how do you know if, if a document is read correctly or not for a visually impaired person, right? Like they have to, you know, uh, rate the outputs and things like that, and and so we we try to build some kind of a feedback loop in place. Um, but this is generally our process and our stack. You know, it's it's not very complicated. Um, and all of our and we now spend we initially were GCP based, but then now we have everything on AWS. Uh, we work solely based out of AWS at this point. Uh, yeah.
0: Okay. Interesting. And I'm kind of curious, like how much, uh, how much do you use and kind of rely on either kind of a bunch of kind of key data sets, which came out in, in recent years or pre-trained models? Like, I I kind of wonder whether like envision exists now because like now all of these things are available to people, but I don't know whether that's true or not. Actually it
1: is Partially true. Um, where it really helps is the pre-trained models or the architectures becoming uh, more open, right? Um, you know, when we when we come across newer architectures uh, that are that get put out, like for example, something like EfficientNet, you know, that came out. Uh, those really help us a lot. Um, where where we don't get a lot of help is the data. You know, one of the really interesting things in this space, and I think one of the key sort of, I would say. Motes that Envision as a company has tends to be the fact that the data that we have is all from a visually impaired person's perspective. And that helps us build much, much superior AI compared to competitors in this space who might have to rely more on open data sets in the beginning. Because these open data sets, they're all data that's captured from the point of view of a sighted person, right? If you look at a data set like ICDAR, which basically contains a lot of documents that are scanned, those documents are perfectly scanned, top-down, cropped and properly perspective transform but if you look at how a visually impaired person captures a document with a phone it's dramatically different the angles are very skewed sometimes they only capture a portion of the document and you know or sometimes the way they capture or the whole their phone is in completely different orientation so you get different orientation so All those things matter a lot. And initially, we had to go through a lot to basically even build our own data sets in some of these areas, like for example, document detection and all those things. We had to invite users to the office, collect data from there. And eventually, when we started to work with user data, we had to work through a lot of stages before we can actually use the data that's coming in from the users or before really having like our own data set to start working on bigger problems. So what really helped Envision in the early days was definitely the availability of pre-trained models, checkpoints, architectures, and even some of the papers that people wrote that did contain insights into how they do post-processing, for example, when they're trying to scan a table or when they're trying to scan a document. Those things really, really helped envision in the early days as a startup because, of course, we didn't have the bandwidth to do all that research ourselves. You know, initially, it was just me trying to figure this stuff out. And over a period of time, we've come to rely more on our own data set, plus the advances that are happening in the open field and combining them together to actually solve problems.
0: Mm-hmm. And from what I understand, like you also allow, uh, allow users to kind of customize, and whether this involves fine-tuning tra- fine or anything, like customize the models for their own particular people in their lives or, or specific objects and things.
1: Um, yeah, yeah so we actually we actually allow people to teach uh faces of their friends or family members uh that's a fairly solved problem at this point you know you can go ahead and personalize a face detection model uh you know uh, and and have it do a really good job so we've built our own pipeline uh, where you know we have the captured faces uh, we quickly fine tune the model per so we have per model per user and we quickly fine tune the model Uh, you know, based on the new faces that they're basically training with Envision, uh, and then we deploy that back onto the device. So we've built an online offline hybrid, you know, system to be able to do that. Um, In the future, we're going to be launching a few months down the line, a fully offline version as well, uh, because right now, uh, you know, both, Apple and Google, especially on some of the higher end devices, uh, have a really nice model personalization slash training uh, capability with TensorFlow or with Core ML. So we're going to, you know, utilize that and try to do all of the training offline. What has been very challenging for us uh, has been objects. We would love to build. Uh, you know, we would love to give Envision the ability to learn different objects in your environment so that, for example, if you have like a particular cup or that you, that you drink coffee from every day, uh, it can go ahead and tell, you know, differentiate that versus the mm-hmm. other cups that you might have in your house, right? Um, but that has been particularly challenging for us because uh, we've tried zero shot or a few shot learning methods. Um, all of those things kind of work great on paper. But again, uh, you know, we, we don't have anything that can work reliably well in different lighting conditions, in different backgrounds. So it's, it's been a challenge uh, to build the teaching objects part, but teaching faces is a solved problem uh, that I think pretty much anyone can just Google that stuff up and, and have a system working in like a couple of days, you know? Yeah. I mean, in, yeah. like when we first launched it in 2017, 2018, that was fairly novel. Uh, but now it's like you have a lot of proprietary, uh, you know, like you have Amazon, Google, and all of these guys also offering similar things that you can that you can use as well.
0: Yeah, nice. And yeah, I guess the fact that you can you can iterate back and forth between um, the device and and off it, like uh, obviously that makes things much
1: yeah. much more possible. Yeah, yeah. And and now you have much more, uh, like, now you have more things that you can do offline with less effort. Um, you know, when we started, we had to, like, do a lot of work uh, to, to make anything work offline. Uh, well, for example, if you wanted to make our OCR engines work offline, uh, OCR engines are, like, all multi-stage pipelines in the very beginning. So it was incredibly, incredibly hard uh, to do all of that offline. But over a period of time, what uh, what we have seen is that yeah, like you know, the because of advances in the architecture and in in the way uh, things are done in general, uh, and and also advances in in the general tooling itself, you know, like TF TF Mobile or TF Lite has itself become much much more advanced uh, from the beginning. Uh, so it's made it easier for us to deploy. All of these uh, on device, and today I think for anyone starting out to build uh, an, an ML, uh, you know, product, it's actually really, really simple. You have so many tools. You know, even you guys like Zennable. I mean, ML ops is actually a well-known, you know, like area that is kind of, you know, coming up. But when we started first, everything had to be done by hand. And what was the sad part is that you know a lot of those things kept getting outdated in like you know six months time because somebody will launch something uh like an open source library or an open source like you know company would come out and then you know or the work that we put in to build those you know stages would just get completely outdated and i i would just hit myself in the head every six to eight months thinking like why didn't this thing come you know six months ago right yeah yeah so that's uh, that's yeah. one of the things that that luxuries you have today
0: yeah yeah i'm kind of curious like what what are the other kind of big challenges you face uh, in terms of, like, just the, the engineering of this? Um, yeah,
1: I think it, what remains the biggest challenge for us is uh, deploying stuff on device uh, and really, you know, ensuring that the models are updated uh, consistently across different versions, across different platforms. The challenge with deployment earlier was the lack of you know, tooling and the lack of things. That, that has kind of evolved slowly. But now uh, the expectation that a lot of our users have is that the stuff needs to work offline entirely. And as, as you... As we are becoming a company that sells more to enterprises than directly to customers, uh, that requirement has actually moved up a notch, right? For example, we sell the glasses to hospital networks and hospital mm-hmm. networks, no matter how much you promise them, how what, what, what kind of SLAs you want to sign with them and things like that, they do not ever want to have a device that connects to their, you or know, to their uh, hospital network uh, that talks to external systems, right? Um, and we're still a small enough company, and we don't have the bandwidth to like, deploy stuff on premise, and we don't, we can't go into a full-blown enterprise offering just yet. Uh, so we have to try and make more of our complex models work offline on the Google Glass, which is basically a device, uh, w- w- which is which is stuck in 2019, right? Like that's the state of the art of that device. It's not evolved since then. So it's the biggest challenge uh, that we face. So, um, and when you do stuff offline, people still expect it to work well enough. Uh, And even if you you, you can, you know, basic quantization techniques just don't uh, cut it anymore. So right now we have our own quantization flows where we go deeper into, so we, At this point right now, we stopped working with even open architectures unless they're really good and unless they can solve very generic problems like object detection and stuff like that. That's when we work with open architectures. We started working with our own, you know, uh, architectures. We started looking for our, uh, you know, building our own architectures and owning that also uh, in-house because That means that we can be more in control of the quantization process, which means it makes it easier to deploy those models on device. That is what tends to be like the biggest engineering problem. Second engineering problem that we face is building data collection pipelines, um, you know, within these really low power devices. Right. You know, when when. Earlier, when you we used to have stuff deployed on the cloud, the requests used to come into the cloud, and from there you could basically go ahead and like you know things like take care of things like storing uh, the user data based on user consent and all those things. But now, when more of this stuff happens on device, um, how do you actually go ahead and send data from uh, the device to the cloud? whenever there is a network, whenever there's a spotty network, because you can also not go ahead and store data on the device forever. How do you know which data to pick and which data to not pick? So those are the, you know, some of the more difficult engineering problems that we are actually looking to solve, that we're solving today, right? Um, so the deploying on device and collecting data from edge devices, bringing that back onto the cloud and go putting them into the data pipeline uh, are like some of the really big, big challenges that we have. And of course... I'm just talking purely about the ML side. There's also the other side uh, where, you know, since the apps that, so our, our, our apps are looking to go free. I think by the time this, this episode uh, might come out in a few weeks, uh, yeah, our apps would be free. We used to have a subscription model for the apps and now the apps are free. Uh, because we've been able to bring more of these on device, uh, our cost to have the app is actually quite low. Um, but still, there are like significant backend costs that we'll also have to consider, and we'll have to like redo the backend of the app to be on a, based on a serverless architecture rather than you know uh, EC2 instances, because then we're going to be paying more for it. But those are more like regular engineering challenges. But going forward, these kind of challenges. Are becoming harder and harder to solve. Specifically, for example, we're trying to deploy a scene description model, uh, an image captioning model, on device right now. Uh, And it used to be on the cloud earlier, but you know, uh, the expectation from users has changed to having it on device, especially when we're selling it to these hospitals and hospital networks and things like that. Um, And we're in the process of trying to really. Redo our image captioning model from the ground up. All of these different things, like building our own architecture, figuring out how quantization works specifically for us, and trying to really bring them on devices. That's some. That's like a specific engineering challenge that we're having at the moment.
0: Mm -hmm. And how do you feel the the world of Tooling is 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 like is supporting those challenges because uh, at least from my experience of, of, of some of these things, it's like we're yeah, it's not quite there. We're not a lot of the tools. And it sounds like you're just building a lot of it yourself.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think um, the tooling lacks. So what I find is there is a lack of one uniform uh, format that kind of works uh, across the board. So what I mean is for example, um, or or one uniform tool chain that can work across different platforms or or is platform agnostic. Uh, For example, we have to build our own data pipelines. Uh, So the whole process of pulling data from edge devices uh, bringing it onto, uh, you know, uh, the cloud, and then really going through the motions in terms of, you know, applying some processes to clean the data automatically, and then put them into a silo. So those we've not been able to find, uh, like, you know, sufficient tooling in those areas. That's one thing. Second thing is. Even deploying models on device, we still have a very primitive versioning system that we use to deploy models on device. So we use, uh, say, for example, uh, Firebase, which is really, you know, common uh, mobile backend platform. And we have our own, you know, versioning scripts and things like that to basically pull these models uh, onto device and so on and so forth. And even collecting feedback about the models, we'll have to, again, build our own pipeline for collecting feedback about specific images or specific operations back into our own analytics funnel. Uh, So these are like the three or four areas where I'm seeing that there are different companies that do very well in one space or the other, but uh, it's kind of hard to find a company or find a set of tools that work very well with each other you know there's like there seems to be no open uh platform for being able to do these things um which is what i wish you know existed uh yeah that, that's that's basically what i see that's where i we spend a lot of our engineering effort trying to do you know we don't want to do that we would ideally want to have a set of tools that can do this by you know automatically but uh, or or with a bit of plug and play and even if it costs us that doesn't really it would still save us a lot in terms of the man hours we take to build different stages of the pipeline
0: so i can imagine um particularly dealing with a device like this there are some kind of very specific and kind of real like risks um, that you have to think about when when designing and working on this whether it's in terms of like giving people the wrong information or telling them that that they can walk in this place or not, or that this is a safe thing to touch, or I, I don't know exactly what, what this is. I was wondering, maybe you could talk a little bit about that, that risk environment and whether like how much of it is like constrained by like the law versus just your own assessments of that.
1: Yeah, sure. So I think, um, First of all, we try to avoid situations uh, where you know we know that a user's life might be at risk. Uh, for example, one of the things that people always ask us is why don't you do navigation? You know, like you know, even uh, you know some of the interns that we have for machine learning they're so enthusiastic they're like, yeah, you know, you could take this particular segmentation model that people use and then just try to go ahead and uh, slap it onto the you know classes and you can have autonomous walking, right? Uh, but We don't do that because we know that there are massive risks in telling a customer uh, that, okay, it's red light or or green light when they're standing at a pedestrian crossing. It's 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 something that we never want people to uh, rely on our device for at this point, uh, especially because all we have is the camera. You know, Uh, we don't have other onboard sensors to kind of validate that we can't bring sensor fusion into this right now. So that's the reason why we don't do navigation at the moment with uh, with Envision. So that that kind of is where most people are wary, or I would be very wary of of machine learning trying to solve those problems with just you know uh, the camera as the primary means of input. On the other hand. Uh, we heavily rely on users to guide us on, on what kind of, uh, um, you know, outputs are, are ideal for them. So what we do is after every X number of, you know, usages of the app or the glasses, we just ask them, you know, this last output that you got, was that okay for you or not? Uh, we, we do that a lot more with the beta testers, uh, as well. So when we deploy a new version of the model, uh, we ask beta testers about, you know, like uh, you know, like we have a big beta testing group about like two thousand people uh, who are currently using a beta of the inversion app. So we go ahead and tell them, like, ask them questions. Uh, did you, how did you find this? How did you not find this? Can you give us more information? Uh, you know about what kind of, w- how you were happy with the output, how you are not happy with the output. So we do a lot of quantitative asking of the users to guide us on how well a model version is particularly performing or how well a feature is performing. Um, and we also do a lot of in-house testing as well. Uh, in the case of working with people who are blind or visually impaired, especially if you you yourself are not blind or visually impaired, you have to do a lot of in-person qualitative testing as well. So at the end of every, every, every quarter, we basically assess the accuracy of all the models uh, that we currently have deployed on the app or on, on the cloud, uh, and we use these metrics to guide us you know like the the feed the actual feedback from the users about how accurate uh, a document has been scanned how easy was it for them to be able to scan that document or uh, you know did the table that they read just make sense to them so those are all you know like the metrics that we track and use to assess how good the model is working uh, in production and of course you know we also use um, We also periodically test the model. Uh, You know, we keep updating our validation set and we keep periodically testing our models against those uh, validation sets so that we ourselves have like a very objective mathematical idea of like how well a model is performing uh, versus not. So these are some of the tools that we use uh, in the open. It becomes challenging because unlike other machine learning apps, you can't, you know, the user can't see the output and verify if actually if the model is actually doing a good job or not, right? Uh, it's basically based on the knowledge of the user who's trying to scan the document about what the document is. That kind of guides us whether, you know, their output could be good or not. And it also guides the user to know whether they're actually getting the right output or not. From them. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Because I, mean, I guess like this whole reliability and trustworthiness of your models, like it's as much as engineering product, uh, you know, project as, as as it is anything else. You need to be able to like feed all of that feedback back into to how you're developing the models. Then,
1: yeah, no, right. that's the that's so true. Which is why like then vision, I think the computer vision role is so much more than just computer vision. I think it's it's a lot to do with also understanding the users understanding the problem uh, that they're trying to solve and actually really, really understanding, you know, the the problem from the user's perspective when working on the model or when, uh, you know, or when working on the feature itself, right? Um, And the way we do it at Envision is that we give a, you know, engineer full ownership of that particular feature, right? So they go right from uh, designing or understanding how the designers work with that particular feature, what the expectation from the users are, uh, to how it's going to be deployed with the platform engineer. So they get a very holistic idea of how to build something end to end right now when they're talk, when they're wanting to work on a particular machine learning feature. I think that's the way, um, you know, we would go, go into the future as well, right? At some point, of course some, you know, some things will get really big for just one person to work on, but the kind of, you know, niche problems that we're tackling, one person can actually take it end to end and that gives them a very holistic idea of, of the problem they're trying to solve. You know, They're just not trying to take some, um, yeah, some particular notes from the designers and then trying to like, yeah, build or, or create, uh, uh, build something based on that. They're actually you know, talking to users and also incorporating their feedback directly into the work. So, yeah. It's one of the perks of being in the startup space, you know, phase where you are small enough to still work on problems end to end. So you have a very deep understanding of the problem. At some point, if we go, if we get much bigger, then yeah, we'll have to start compartmentalizing it. But right now, we ask one engineer to take a feature end to end, no matter how long it takes.
0: Um... I'm curious before we go to the final two questions, if you were to take a bit of a step back in terms of like the things that you've learned over, over the past few years, like what will be some core lessons that you've, you would take away from what it means to put models into production and and how to do this in a um, Mm. useful way?
1: Mm. Well, I think the biggest lesson that I have learned in, in taking models and putting into production is Understanding the problem really, really well, and understanding the problem holistically. I think, as an engineer, especially if you're someone who's wanting to build um, a, a machine learning or AI-based, uh, you know, product to be put into the hands of people like customers in general i think it's kind of becomes easy to just look at it as a technical problem saying ah okay it's 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 a, it's an ocr problem or it's an it's an object detection problem or it's a classification problem it looks it's very easy to sort of put uh, or you know have a very technical uh, lens to all the things that you know you hear customers talking about or the problems they face but i think having a deep deep understanding of why they want to solve that problem why is it important to solve that problem uh, at this point you know what are the constraints that you have to work with Uh, I think that's also a very important thing as part of understanding the problem is what are the primary constraints of the problem itself Uh, is it something that needs to be happening on device is it needs to be happening online what is like the real use case for it uh, even though you might be an engineer who's just building stuff, uh, you know, maybe you're, a, you're you're a slightly bigger company and you're just working on a piecemeal uh, part of the problem. I think it's still very, very important to understand the problem. I think that's that's the one thing I wish I had done very, very early on is to just immerse myself in the problem more before starting to actually you know go into the research and into the development and, and and so on right because that would save that would have saved me a lot of time in the past with some of the mistakes uh, that i made uh, when it comes to solving problems and i just you know um, i was just impatient and i think just being patient immersing yourself in the problem and truly understanding what you're trying to solve um it's not just the, the job of designers to do that i think it's also the job of engineers especially computer vision engineers because i also noticed a lot of times that you know communication is an important skill to have uh, if you're a computer vision engineer because a lot of times in the ml space people outside the ml space don't really know what is possible to do uh, with ml models uh, at this point so you have to be the one to understand the problem really deeply and explain the options to the engineering team or to the design to the, to, to the design team right um, i've seen so many you know interesting solutions i've seen so many different you know uh, i've i've seen features get completely changed inside out when the when the computer vision engineer starts to understand the problem and suggests that hey you know what i read this paper and you know they have this new way of doing this and that can work on the glasses so that gives the designers like oh wait i didn't know you could do that right because again machine learning is still such a technical space that it's not very easy for people outside the space to penetrate and understand. And if you are someone who understands the problem well, and if you're someone who can communicate the different options available to the rest of the team or to to the business folks, I think that makes a huge difference in how you know a product gets built or how a feature gets built. And you know that can change the course of the product or the feature itself. Uh, and so it's important for the for the machine learners, especially the practitioners. Uh, to be good at communicating as well um, i think that's the like i think understanding the problem deeply is is the is the most important thing that i have learned um, and and you know being able to communicate the constraints and being able to communicate the options to people outside of the machine learning team uh, so that they can make informed product decisions as well that is also like a really really important thing i think i think some of the best work that we have done have come from engineers understanding the problem and really opening up the door the 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 options for designers to start building stuff on
0: yeah there's there's definitely definitely ring true
1: we usually like
0: to end these podcasts with a couple of shorter questions answer them in whatever way you'd like so first off what would you say or what would you yeah recommend as a, a quick win that someone can add to to make their productionizing of models just more
1: robust i think it's um it's a a quick thing that they can do. Um, hmm. Wait. Uh, I think. A, hmm. Well, it's it's a bit. Uh, I can't think of anything at this at this point. Uh, yeah. I I can only think of very specific things that we have done in the past uh, that has really helped us. I think you know. Um, to productionize the model, I think the first thing I would say is you know build the build a least. Uh, shortest path from taking the model from within a Jupyter notebook uh, to getting it into the form of an API, right? Uh, I think that's the first thing that we always do. Uh, you know, it's all if it's all the Jupyter notebooks, then it's very hard for the engineers to understand how things work at, at, at some level. So I think, so we use, for example, uh, Gradio and all of these other tools, uh, you know, to like quickly, you know, get the model out of the Jupyter notebook or even use the Jupyter notebook itself as an, as a server of sorts. Uh, but yeah, the first step in production I think is prototyping and the first step in prototyping is really just building the basic API uh, around the model itself. Yeah,
0: yep, I think I think that's good and not, not done often enough, I guess. And what would be one part of putting models in, into production that you think people building tools in this space need to give a bit more attention to?
1: If the models are going to be deployed on device, it would be really an interesting uh, to figure out ways that can help uh, you know the, the the practitioners who are putting the model into production try to build you know uh, make it easy for them to build image pipelines you know or or even data pipelines uh, from edge devices. You know, uh, and you know, to to their to whatever data pipeline that they're using on the cloud, because that part actually uh, is still something that I know a lot of other companies do, like custom tooling for, uh, which could be something that you know people who are in the tooling space could look into and say, okay, uh, if these models are going to get deployed on the on on the edge, how can we best help uh, build data pipelines, uh, you know, from the edge uh, devices over to the cloud, and so. Yeah, that that's one at least one particular problem that we face quite quite heavily.
0: Great. thank you um so yeah i guess um thank you very much for 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 coming on and um uh if people want to to check out what you're doing and 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 stay in touch and keep 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 in contact and so on like how how will they go about that
1: uh i'm most i'm a twitter addict uh self-professed twitter addict so uh you know i think uh, i can i can ping you my um my my twitter handle and just put it in the show notes that's the best way to get in touch with me uh i live on twitter so yeah that's that's probably it
0: okay great thank you
1: yeah thanks so much
0: okay thank you for listening to this latest episode of pipeline conversations if you enjoyed what you heard please consider giving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us get seen by more people. And of course, it's always nice to receive feedback. If you have suggestions for future guests, please send them over to podcast and Thanks. Until next time.